Summer, Parts 1 to 9, of The Private Papers of Henry Rycroft, by George Gissing. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Summer. 1. Today, as I was reading in the garden, a waft of summer perfume, some hidden link of association in what I read, I know not what it may have been, took me back to schoolboy holidays. I recovered with strange intensity that lightsome mood of long release from tasks, of going away to the seaside, which is one of childhood's blessings. I was in the train, no rushing express, such as bears you great distances, the sober train which goes to no place of importance, which lets you see the white steam of the engine float and fall upon a meadow ere you pass. Thanks to a good and wise father, we youngsters saw nothing of seaside places where crowds assemble. I am speaking, too, of a time more than forty years ago, when it was still possible to find on the coasts of northern England, east or west, spots known only to those who loved the shore for its beauty and its solitude. At every station the train stopped. Little stations, decked with beds of flowers, smelling warm in the sunshine, where country folk got in with baskets, and talked in an unfamiliar dialect, an English which to us sounded almost like a foreign tongue. Then the first glimpse of the sea, the excitement of noting whether tide was high or low, stretches of sand and weedy pools, or halcyon wavelets frothing at their furthest reach, under the sea-banks starred with convolvulus. Of a sudden, our station. Ah, that taste of the brine on a child's lips. Nowadays I can take holiday when I will, and go whithersoever it pleases me. But that salt kiss of the sea air I shall never know again. My senses are dulled. I cannot get so near to nature. I have a sorry dread of her clouds, her winds, and must walk with tedious circumspection, where once I ran and leapt exultingly. Were it possible, but for one half-hour, to plunge and bask in the sunny surf, to roll on the silvery sand-hills, to leap from rock to rock on shining sea-ferns, laughing if I slipped into the shallows among starfish and anemones. I am much older in body than in mind. I can but look at what I once enjoyed. 2. I have been spending a week in Somerset. The right June weather put me in the mind for rambling, and my thoughts turned to the southern sea. I went to Glastonbury and Wells, and on to Cheddar, and so to the shore of the Channel at Clevedon, remembering my holiday of fifteen years ago, and too often losing myself in a contrast of the man I was then and what I am now beautiful beyond all words of description, that nook of oldest England. But that I feared the moist and misty winter climate, I should have chosen some spot below the Mendips for my home and resting-place. Unspeakable the charm to my ear of those old names, 
exquisite the quiet of those little towns, lost amid tilth and pasturage, untouched as yet by the fury of modern life, their ancient sanctuaries, guarded, as it were, by noble trees and hedges overrun with flowers. In all England there is no sweeter and more varied prospect than that from the hill of the holy thorn at Glastonbury. In all England there is no lovelier musing-place than the leafy walk beside the palace moat at Wells. As I think of the golden hours I spent there, a passion to which I can give no name takes hold upon me. My heart trembles with an indefinable ecstasy. There was a time of my life when I was consumed with a desire for foreign travel. An impatience of everything familiar fretted me through all the changing year. If I had not at length found the opportunity to escape, if I had not seen the landscapes for which my soul longed, I think I must have moped to death. Few men, assuredly, have enjoyed such wanderings more than I, and few men revive them in memory with a richer delight or deeper longing. But whatever temptation comes to me in mellow autumn, when I think of the grape and of the olive, I do not believe I shall ever again cross the sea. What remains to me of life and of energy is far too little for the enjoyment of all I know and all I wish to know of this dear island. As a child I used to sleep in a room hung round with prints after English landscape painters, those steel engravings so common half a century ago which bore the legend, From the Picture in the Vernon Gallery. Far more than I knew at the time, these pictures impressed me. I gazed and gazed at them with that fixed attention of a child which is half curiosity, half reverie till every line of them was fixed in my mind. At this moment I see the black and white landscapes as if they were hanging on the wall before me, and I have often thought that this early training of the imagination, for such it was, has much to do with the passionate love of rural scenery which lurked within me even when I did not recognize it, and which now for many a year has been one of the emotions directing my life. Perhaps, too, that early memory explains why I love a good black-and-white print even more than a good painting. And, to draw yet another inference, here may be a reason for the fact that through my youth and early manhood I found more pleasure in nature as represented by art than in nature herself. Even during that strange time, when hardships and passions held me captive far from any glimpse of the flowering earth, I could be moved and moved deeply by a picture of the simplest rustic scene. At rare moments, when a happy chance led me into the National Gallery, I used to stand long before such pictures as The Valley Farm, The Cornfield, Mousehold Heath, in the murk confusion of my heart, these visions of the world of peace and beauty from which I was excluded, to which, indeed, I hardly ever gave a thought, touched me to deep emotion. But it did not need, nor does it now, the magic of a master to awake that mood in me. 
let me but come upon the poorest little woodcut, the cheapest process illustration, representing a thatched cottage, a lane, a field, and I hear that music begin to murmur. It is a passion, heaven be thanked, that grows with my advancing years. The last thought of my brain as I lie dying will be that of sunshine upon an English meadow. 3. Sitting in my garden amid the evening scent of roses, I have read through Walton's Life of Hooker. Could any place and time have been more appropriate? Almost within sight is the tower of Heavy Tree Church, Heavy Tree, which was Hooker's birthplace. In other parts of England, he must often have thought of these meadows falling to the green valley of the Axe, and of the sun setting behind the pines of Halden. Hooker loved the country. Delightful to me, and infinitely touching, is that request of his to be transferred from London to a rural living, where I can see God's blessing spring out of the earth. And that glimpse of him where he was found tending sheep with a Horace in his hand. It was in rural solitudes that he conceived the rhythm of mighty prose. What music of the spheres sang to that poor, vixen-haunted, pimply-faced man! The last few pages I read by the light of the full moon, that of afterglow having till then sufficed me. Oh, why has it not been granted me, in all my long years of pen-labor, to write something small and perfect, even as one of these lives of honest Itzak. Here is literature, look you, not literary work. Let me be thankful that I have the mind to enjoy it, not only to understand, but to savor its great goodness. 4. It is Sunday morning and above earth's beauty shines the purest, softest sky this summer has yet gladdened us withal. My window is thrown open. I see the sunny gleam upon garden leaves and flowers. I hear the birds, whose want it is to sing to me. Ever and anon the martins that have their home beneath my eaves sweep past in silence. Church bells have begun to chime. I know the music of their voices, near and far. There was a time when it delighted me to flash my satire on the English Sunday. I could see nothing but antiquated foolishness and modern hypocrisy in this weekly pause from labor and from bustle. Now I prize it as an inestimable boon, and dread every encroachment upon its restful stillness. Scoff as I might at Sabbatarianism, was I not always glad when Sunday came? The bells of London churches and chapels are not soothing to the ear, but when I remember their sound, even that of the most aggressively pharisaic conventicle with its one dire clapper, I find it associated with a sense of repose, of liberty. This day of the seven, I granted to my better genius. Work was put aside, and when heaven permitted, trouble forgotten. When out of England, 
I have always missed this Sunday quietude, this difference from ordinary days, which seems to affect the very atmosphere. It is not enough that people should go to church, that shops should be closed and workyards silent. These holiday notes do not make a Sunday. Think as one may of its significance, our day of rest has a peculiar sanctity, felt, I imagine, in a more or less vague way, even by those who wish to see the village lads at cricket and theatres open in the town. The idea is surely as good a one as ever came to heavy-laden mortals. Let one whole day in every week be removed from the common life of the world, lifted above common pleasures as above common cares. With all the abuses of fanaticism, this thought remained rich in blessings. Sunday has always brought large good to the generality, and to a chosen number has been the very life of the soul, however heretically some of them understood the words. If its ancient use perish from among us, so much the worse for our country. And perish, no doubt it will. Only here in rustic solitude can one forget the changes that have already made the day less sacred to multitudes. With it will vanish that habit of periodic calm, which, even when it has become so largely devoid of conscious meaning, is, one may safely say, the best spiritual boon ever bestowed upon a people. The most difficult of all things to attain, the most difficult of all to preserve, the supreme benediction of the noblest mind, this calm was once breathed over the whole land, as often as sounded the last stroke of weekly toil. On Saturday at even began the quiet and the solace. With the decline of old faith, Sunday cannot but lose its sanction, and no loss among the innumerable that we are suffering will work so effectually for popular vulgarization. What hope is there of guarding the moral beauty of the day, when the authority which set it apart is no longer recognized? Imagine a bank holiday once a week. 5. On Sunday I come down later than usual. I make a change of dress, for it is fitting that the day of spiritual rest should lay aside the livery of the laborious week. For me, indeed, there is no labor at any time, but nevertheless does Sunday bring me repose. I share in the common tranquillity. My thought escapes the workaday world more completely than on other days. It is not easy to see how this house of mine can make to itself a Sunday quiet, for at all times it is well-nigh soundless. Yet I find a difference. My housekeeper comes into the room with her Sunday smile. She is happier for the day, and the sight of her happiness gives me pleasure. She speaks, if possible, in a softer voice. She wears a garment which reminds me that there is only the lightest and cleanest housework to be done. She will go to church morning and evening, and I know that she is better for it. During her absence, I sometimes look into rooms which on other days I never enter. 
It is merely too glad in my eyes, with the shining cleanliness, the perfect order, I am sure to find in the good woman's domain. But for that spotless and sweet-smelling kitchen, what would it avail me to range my books and hang my pictures? All the tranquillity of my life depends upon the honest care of this woman who lives and works unseen. And I am sure that the money I pay her is the least part of her reward. She is such an old-fashioned person that the mere discharge of what she deems a duty is in itself an end to her, and the work of her hands in itself a satisfaction, a pride. When a child I was permitted to handle on Sunday certain books which could not be exposed to the more careless usage of common days, volumes finely illustrated, or the more handsome editions of familiar authors, or works which merely by their bulk demanded special care. Happily, these books were all of the higher rank in literature, and so there came to be established in my mind an association between the day of rest and names which are the greatest in verse and prose. Through my life this habit has remained with me. I have always wished to spend some part of the Sunday quiet with books which, at most times, it is fatally easy to leave aside, one's very knowledge and love of them serving as an excuse for their neglect in favor of print which has the attraction of newness. Homer and Virgil, Milton and Shakespeare, not many Sundays have gone by without my opening one or other of these. Not many Sundays, nay, that is to exaggerate, as one has the habit of doing. Let me say, rather, that on many a rest day I have found mind and opportunity for such reading. Nowadays mind and opportunity fail me never. I may take down my Homer or my Shakespeare when I choose, but it is still on Sunday that I feel it most becoming to seek the privilege of their companionship. For these great ones, crowned with immortality, do not respond to him who approaches them as though hurried by temporal care. There befits the garment of solemn leisure, the thought attuned to peace. I open the volume somewhat formally. Is it not sacred, if the word have any meaning at all? And as I read, no interruption can befall me. The note of a linnet, the humming of a bee, these are the sounds about my sanctuary. The page scarce rustles as it turns. 6. Of how many dwellings can it be said that no word of anger is ever heard beneath its roof, and that no unkindly feeling ever exists between the inmates? Most men's experience would seem to justify them in declaring that throughout the inhabited world no such house exists. I, knowing at all events of one, admit the possibility that there may be more. Yet I feel that it is to hazard a conjecture. I cannot point with certainty to any other instance, nor in all my secular life, I speak as one who has quitted the world, could I have named a single example. It is so difficult for human beings to live together, 
Nay, it is so difficult for them to associate, however transitorily, and even under the most favorable conditions, without some shadow of mutual offense. Consider the differences of task and of habit, the conflict of prejudices, the divergence of opinions, though that is probably the same thing, which quickly reveal themselves between any two persons brought into more than casual contact, and think how much self-subdual is implicit whenever, for more than an hour or two, they coexist in seeming harmony. Man is not made for peaceful intercourse with his fellows. He is by nature self-assertive, commonly aggressive, always critical in a more or less hostile spirit of any characteristic which seems strange to him. That he is capable of profound affections merely modifies here and there his natural contentiousness and subdues its expression. Even love, in the largest and purest sense of the word, is no safeguard against perilous irritation and sensibilities inborn. And what were the durability of love without the powerful alliance of habit? Suppose yourself endowed with such power of hearing, that all the talk going on at any moment beneath the domestic roofs of any town became clearly audible to you. The dominant note would be that of moods, tempers, opinions at jar. Who but the most amiable dreamer can doubt it? This, mind you, is not the same thing as saying that angry emotion is the ruling force in human life. The facts of our civilization prove the contrary. Just because, and only because, the natural spirit of conflict finds such frequent scope, does human society hold together, and, on the whole, present a pacific aspect. In the course of ages, one would like to know how many, man has attained a remarkable degree of self-control. Dire experience has forced upon him the necessity of compromise, and habit has inclined him, the individual, to prefer a quiet orderly life. But by instinct he is still a quarrelsome creature, and he gives vent to the impulse as far as it is compatible with his recent interests, often to be sure without regard for that limit. The average man or woman is always at open discord with someone. The great majority could not live without oft-recurrent squabble. Speak in confidence with anyone you like, and get him to tell you how many cases of coldness, alienation, or downright enmity between friends and kinsfolk his memory registers. The number will be considerable, and what a vastly greater number of everyday misunderstandings may be thence inferred. Verbal contention is, of course, commoner among the poor and the vulgar than in the class of well-bred people living at their ease, but I doubt whether the lower ranks of society find personal association much more difficult than the refined minority above them. High cultivation may help to self-command, but it multiplies the chances of irritative contact. In mansion as in hovel, the strain of life is perpetually felt. Between the married, between parents and children, between relatives of every degree, between employers and employed, they debate, they dispute, they wrangle, they explode. 
then nerves are relieved, and they are ready to begin over again. Quit the home, and quarrelling is less obvious, but it goes on all about one. What proportion of the letters delivered any morning would be found to be written in displeasure, in petulance, in wrath? The postbag shrieks insults or bursts with suppressed malice. Is it not wonderful, nay, is it not the marvel of marvels, that human life has reached such a high point of public and private organization? And gentle idealists utter their indignant wonder at the continuance of war. Why it passes the wit of man to explain how it is that nations are ever at peace. For if only by the rarest good fortune do individuals associate harmoniously, there would seem to be much less likelihood of mutual understanding and goodwill between the peoples of alien lands. As a matter of fact, no two nations are ever friendly, in the sense of truly liking each other. With the reciprocal criticism of countries, there always mingles a sentiment of animosity. The original meaning of hostis is merely stranger, and a stranger who is likewise a foreigner will only by curious exception fail to stir antipathy in the average human being. Add to this that a great number of persons in every country find their delight and their business in exasperating international disrelish, and with what vestige of common sense can one feel surprise that war is ceaselessly talked of, often enough declared. In days gone by, distance and rarity of communication assured peace between many realms. Now that every country is in proximity to every other, what need is there to elaborate explanations of the distrust, the fear, the hatred, which are a perpetual theme of journalists and statesmen? By approximation, all countries have entered the sphere of natural quarrel. That they find plenty of things to quarrel about is no cause for astonishment. A hundred years hence, there will be some possibility of perceiving whether international relations are likely to obey the law which has acted with such beneficence in the life of each civilized people, whether this country and that will be content to ease their tempers with bloodless squabbling, subduing the more violent promptings for the common good. Yet I suspect that a century is a very short time to allow for even justifiable surmise of such an outcome. If by any chance newspapers ceased to exist, talk of war, and one gets involved in such utopian musings. 7. I have been reading one of those prognostic articles on international politics, which every now and then appear in the reviews. Why I should so waste my time, it would be hard to say. I suppose the fascination of disgust and fear gets the better of me in a moment's idleness. This writer, who is horribly perspicacious and vigorous, demonstrates the certainty of a great European war, and regards it with the peculiar satisfaction excited by such things in a certain order of mind. His phrases about dire calamity, and so on, mean nothing. 
the whole tenor of his writing proves that he represents, and consciously, one of the forces which go to bring war about. His part in the business is a fluent irresponsibility, which casts scorn on all who reluct at the inevitable. Persistent prophecy is a familiar way of assuring the event. But I will read no more such writing. This resolution I make and will keep. Why set my nerves quivering with rage, and spoil the calm of a whole day, when no good of any sort can come of it? What is it to me if nations fall a-slaughtering each other? Let the fools go to it! Why should they not please themselves? Peace, after all, is the aspiration of the few. So it always was and ever will be. But have done with the nauseous cant about dire calamity. The leaders and the multitude hold no such view. Either they see in war a direct and tangible profit, or they are driven to it with heads down by the brute that is in them. Let them rend and be rent, let them paddle in blood and viscera till, if that would ever happen, their stomachs turn. Let them blast the cornfield and the orchard, fire the home. For all that, there will yet be found some silent few, who go their way amid the still meadows, who bend to the flower and watch the sunset. And these alone are worth a thought. 8. In this hot weather, I like to walk at times amid the full glow of the sun. Our island sun is never hot beyond endurance, and there is a magnificence in the triumph of high summer which exalts one's mind. Among streets it is hard to bear, yet even there, for those who have eyes to see it, the splendor of the sky lends beauty to things in themselves mean or hideous. I remember an August bank holiday, when, having for some reason to walk all across London, I unexpectedly found myself enjoying the strange desertion of great streets, and from that passed to surprise, in the sense of something beautiful, a charm in the vulgar vista, in the dull architecture, which I had never known. Deep and clear-marked shadows, such as one only sees on a few days of summer, are in themselves very impressive, and become more so when they fall upon highways devoid of folk. I remember observing, as something new, the shape of familiar edifices, of spires, monuments. And when at length I sat down, somewhere on the embankment, it was rather to gaze at leisure than to rest, for I felt no weariness, and the sun, still pouring upon me its noontide radiance, seemed to fill my veins with life. That sense I shall never know again. For me, nature has comforts, raptures, but no more invigoration. The sun keeps me alive, but cannot, as in the old days, renew my being. I would fain learn to enjoy without reflecting. My walk in the golden hours leads me to a great horse-chestnut, whose root offers a convenient seat in the shadow of its foliage. At that resting-place I have no wide view before me, but what I see is enough. A corner of wasteland, 
overflowered with poppies and charlock, on the edge of a field of corn. The brilliant red and yellow harmonize with the glory of the day. Nearby, too, is a hedge covered with great white blooms of the bindweed. My eyes do not soon grow weary. A little plant of which I am very fond is the rest harrow. When the sun is hot upon it, the flower gives forth a strangely aromatic scent, very delightful to me. I know the cause of this peculiar pleasure. The rest harrow sometimes grows in sandy ground above the seashore. In my childhood I have many a time lain in such a spot under the glowing sky, and though I scarce thought of it, perceived the odour of the little rose-pink flower when it touched my face. Now I have but to smell it, and those hours come back again. I see the shore of Cumberland running north to St. Bee's Head. On the sea horizon a faint shape which is the Isle of Man. Inland the mountains, which for me at that time guarded a region of unknown wonder. Ah, how long ago! 9. I read much less than I used to do. I think much more. Yet what is the use of thought which can no longer serve to direct life? Better, perhaps, to read and read incessantly, losing one's feudal self in the activity of other minds. This summer I have taken up no new book, but have renewed my acquaintance with several old ones, which I had not opened for many a year. One or two have been books such as mature men rarely read at all, books which it is one's habit to take as read, to presume sufficiently known to speak of, but never to open. Thus one day my hand fell upon the Anabasis, the little Oxford edition which I used at school, with its boyish sign-manual on the fly-leaf, its blots and underlinings and marginal scrawls. To my shame I possess no other edition. Yet this is a book one would like to have in beautiful form. I opened it. I began to read. A ghost of boyhood stirring in my heart, and from chapter to chapter was led on, until after a few days I had read the whole. I am glad this happened in the summer time. I like to link childhood with these latter days, and no better way could I have found than this return to a schoolbook, which, even as a schoolbook, was my great delight. By some trick of memory I always associate schoolboy work on the classics with a sense of warm and sunny days. Rain and gloom and a chilly atmosphere must have been far the more frequent conditions, but these things are forgotten. My old Little and Scott still serves me, and if, in opening it, I bend close enough to catch the scent of the leaves, I am back again at that day of boyhood, noted on the fly-leaf by the hand of one long dead, when the book was new and I used it for the first time. It was a day of summer, and perhaps there fell upon the unfamiliar page, viewed with childish tremor, half apprehension and half delight, a mellow sunshine which was to linger for ever in my mind. But I am thinking of the Anabasis. 
were this the sole book existing in Greek, it would be abundantly worthwhile to learn the language in order to read it. The Anabasis is an admirable work of art, unique in its combination of concise and rapid narrative with color and picturesqueness. Herodotus wrote a prose epic in which the author's personality is ever before us. Xenophon, with curiosity and love of adventure, which mark him of the same race, but self-forgetful in the pursuit of a new artistic virtue, created the historical romance. What a world of wonders in this little book, all aglow with ambitions and conflicts, with marvels of strange lands, full of perils and rescues, fresh with the air of mountain and of sea. Think of it for a moment by the side of Caesar's commentaries, not to compare things incomparable, but in order to appreciate the perfect art which shines through Xenophon's mastery of language, his brevity achieving a result so different from that of the like characteristic in the Roman writer. Caesar's conciseness comes of strength and pride, Xenophon's of a vivid imagination. Many a single line of the Anabasis presents a picture which deeply stirs the emotions. A good instance occurs in the fourth book, where a delightful passage of unsurpassable narrative tells how the Greeks rewarded and dismissed a guide who had led them through dangerous country. The man himself was in peril of his life. Laden with valuable things which the soldiers had given him in their gratitude, he turned to make his way through the hostile region. Epi espera ayenato oheto tis niktos. When evening came, he took leave of us, and went his way by night. To my mind, words of wonderful suggestiveness. You see the wild eastern landscape, upon which the sun has set. There are the Hellenes, safe for the moment on their long march. And there the mountain tribesmen, the serviceable barbarian, going away, alone, with his tempting guerdon, into the hazards of the darkness. Also in the fourth book, another picture moves one in another way. Among the Carducian hills, two men were seized, and information was sought from them about the track to be followed. One of them would say nothing, and kept silence in spite of every threat, so in the presence of his companion he was slain. Thereupon that other made known the man's reason for refusing to point out the way. In the direction the Greeks must take, there dwelt a daughter of his, who was married. It would not be easy to express more pathos than is conveyed in these few words. Xenophon himself, one may be sure, did not feel it quite as we do, but he preserved the incident for its own sake. And there, in a line or two, shines something of human love and sacrifice, significant for all time. End of Summer, Parts 1-9